Just a quick uh, review of the series. You'll see on uh, the sheet we've done four, uh, God's Good Plan for Men and Women, Gender and Sexuality, and then Singleness, and then this morning, Marriage, and tonight, uh, the issue of equality and complementarity, uh, embracing difference between men and women and headship and submission. As we have taught uh, the Bible on these subjects, folks have appreciated the chance to uh, read and study the Bible, uh, and certainly there is a, a request for uh, just more time for us to think these things through together. And we'll do that in the summer term, God willing, with a series of seminars. Uh, and also, in light, for example, of a subject like last Sunday night on singleness and this morning on marriage, uh, just perhaps if we do have time down the track, uh, more uh, time spent looking together at these uh, issues. When people get married in our church, they do marriage prep. Those of us who've been married for some time would benefit from doing marriage prep or marriage refresher. And of course that's true, and we need to do that kind of thing. Especially when the lid is lifted on these subjects and we can feel we can talk honestly with each other on them as we have begun to do. Let me say to you as well tonight that over the past three months, the elders in the church have been studying together all that I'm going to speak on tonight. And it's the right context, therefore, for me to uh, speak now that that process has happened. Now, I've identified on the sheet there a couple of excellent free resources on tonight's subject. Uh, two things you'll see there. The Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood is a big network in the United States that gives a lot of time and attention to this subject. And they're also a free resource which you can get on the Desiring God website by Wayne Grudem and John Piper, 50 Crucial Questions About Manhood and uh, Womanhood. The church in the United States, particularly through movements like the Gospel Coalition and Together for the Gospel, really are way ahead of us here in uh, Western Europe in giving time and attention to addressing these important issues. Not primarily so that we can be articulate in our culture, although that is important, but not as important as being clear within our own church communities what the Bible uh, teaches. And you need that clarity at different points in history, in particular when the cultural wind blows strongly in a different direction. Where the culture, the same as the Bible, we wouldn't be needing perhaps to sit down and look at these issues as we are. But the culture is blowing strongly in a different direction, hence the need to do so. Now our subject this evening is God's good plan for men and women, looking at equality and complementarity. And uh, complementarity means that men and women are different in all sorts of ways, one aspect of which is in the roles they have in the home and in the church and the principles of headship and submission. 
As with this morning, there are seven things I want us to consider. Unlike this morning, we'll get through them all. There are many more things we could profitably look at, but this is what we can cover. Please be assured that I'm not selecting these seven things because these are the seven things I want to see. I've tried carefully and diligently to select them as the seven uh, most important things that there might be uh, to see. Uh, Do text your questions to Sam or write them and hand them in, uh, either on this subject or any of the others in the series, and perhaps especially on marriage that we looked at this morning. Before we consider, though, uh, the first of these seven points, I'd like to begin, as I did this morning, with an opening word about failure and grace. With all the topics in this series, gender, sexuality, singleness, marriage, the equality and complementarity of men and women, there is damage and hurt. So, for example, there is not a single husband in this church who has loved their wife as Christ loves the church. And there is not a single wife in this church who has loved her husband with the same reverence that she has for her Lord Jesus Christ. And that is as true of tonight's subject as any other. Men, in particular, have failed. I'm not just saying this because I'm a bloke trying to get you on side. I think men have failed in the God-given maleness that they are to exercise in two particular ways. They have either autocratically dominated women through history, or more particularly in the 21st century, they have abdicated any form of responsibility to be men. And uh, it works reciprocally as well. And we're all failures. We're all messed up. We're all disaster zones. And we really are. And you know, it's so heartening for me to say off the back of these talks, talk to one another afterwards about these things and to see all over the church people for the first time saying, look, I think your marriage is perfect. Maybe it's not. How are you doing? Or what can I be praying for your marriage? Or what can I be praying for you as a single person? Number one then, it is an important subject for everyone in the church family. One way to help us see that is to be reminded who we are as a church. Who we are as a little church community in the city, with lots going for it. We're going to turn to 1 Timothy later, and in detail next term. Here is why Paul wrote 1 Timothy, which is the number one letter in the New Testament on what should happen in a community like ours. This is what he said. I hope to come to you soon. This is Paul writing to Timothy. But I am writing these things to you, this letter, so that if I delay, you may know. Now, listen to that from Paul to us. That you may know as a church. And my job is to help you to know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, that's us, which is in our world, the pillar and the buttress 
of truth. So, how should we behave as a local church with respect to biblical manhood and biblical womanhood? It is an important subject for us all. Secondly, only as Christians can we fully embrace the Bible's teaching on men and women. That is true in a number of ways. Here are some, or two. Number one, it is only when we are Christians, and what that means is forgiven and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, that we will accept the Bible, what's in your hands, not as the words of men, but as the words of God. And therefore, see what the Bible says as good and desire to live in accordance with it. And if you're not a Christian listening to this, you are not going to approach this in that way. And that's entirely logical and understandable. The second reason that only as Christians can we fully embrace the Bible's teaching on men and women is that it is only when we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, experiencing his transforming power, which is also what a Christian is, can we begin to live as men and women as God intends us to. So if you are a Christian here, listening to what God's Word says, you will have within you a desire to do what it says, because the Holy Spirit is within you. If you are not a Christian listening to this, you may consider that what I'm going to say is uh, culturally out of step, or likely to alienate, or just plain wrong. And that's understandable, and in some ways even logical. But you might not think it is. And if you're not a Christian, I'm really keen that you give this a hearing and think, well, is what the Bible says better than what the culture says? Is it actually a, a really good way for people to live? Somebody this morning who wasn't a Christian listening to the talk on marriage said to me, if only what you were describing was possible. I would love that. That's a great and powerful response. They weren't a Christian, but they wanted what I was describing. And let me hold that out to you as plausible tonight. Now, number three, the biblical foundations for men and women in Genesis 1 and 2. As we've seen in all of the talks in the series, Genesis 1 and 2 is foundational material. So turn with me to the beginning of your Bibles, again, to Genesis 1 and 2. And two passages, the same that we looked at this morning, they are the foundation passages, Genesis 1, 26 to 31, and Genesis 2, 15 to 25. And key verses from both these passages are quoted by Jesus and the apostles in the New Testament. And in quoting them in the New Testament, the apostles and the Lord Jesus are affirming them as foundational, if you like, and therefore always true. So Genesis 1, 26 
to 31. God said, let us make man, that word means humanity, in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man, humanity, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, just focus again on verse uh, 26. Let us make humanity in our image after our likeness. And the outworking of that desire in the heart of God, verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. Now, as humanity, we have a unique privileged responsibility. Humanity is unlike any other part of God's creation. We have a unique privileged responsibility under God to rule over the world and care for it. Secondly, as humanity, we have a unique dignity. We are made in the likeness of God. What does the image or the likeness of God mean? What is it that we are uniquely given? Well, the image of God in humanity means, I think, your and my soul's personal reflection of God's character. God created us to have a soul that reflects God's righteousness and his holiness. Now, the fall and rebellion has rejected that, and the gospel restores that, but to be given the image of God in created order is to be given the righteousness of God in one's soul. I think that's what it means. More than it means, and it does also mean this, that as humans we have rationality, conscience, creativity, and relationships. That's also what it means to be created in the image of God. But it's higher than that. It's godness in humanity. That's why when we are redeemed in the gospel, Christ lives within us. There's godness in creation in humanity, and there's godness in redemption in humanity. Third thing about these foundational verses in Genesis chapter 1, as humanity, we are created male and female. And therefore, we are to see our maleness and our femaleness and to use our maleness and our femaleness under God to rule over the world and to care for it. And number four, we are to rejoice in the goodness of God's creation. And that includes, of course, to rejoice in the goodness of God's good plan and design for humanity. Now, let me uh, pause. So you pause and you remember this. Absolutely central to this is the fundamental equality of men and women in that they bear God's image equally. And that is a line that runs through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. 
God's creation of humanity, like his creation of everything else, has been marred and distorted by humanity's rejection of God, but restored through the redemption that is offered to us through Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus and the apostles made it absolutely clear the fundamental equality of men and women in that they all share all the benefits of salvation equally. Let me give you one New Testament text, Galatians 3.28, that is neither Jew nor Greek, that is neither slave nor free, that is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, it's very important for us to remember that the first century world where Jesus and the apostles spoke and wrote was far more patriarchal than our culture and our society now. Such a statement, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, would have been radically out of step with the first century culture. And the Lord Jesus, as we read in the Gospels, spent a great deal of time speaking to and welcoming women. Again, radically countercultural for his time. Many of Jesus' model disciples, for example, in Mark's Gospel, were women. The sick woman who reached out with simple trusting faith out of a devoted heart to touch Jesus for healing. The poor widow in Mark 12 who gave all she had from a devoted heart. The woman in Mark 14 that kicks off the passion narrative who broke that alabaster jar and poured it on the Lord Jesus' head remembered for all of history. And the first witnesses to the resurrection Women. Think of the passion narratives in the gospel. Chapter 14 begins it, this woman who anoints him. Chapter 16 ends it, the woman who greet him when he comes out of the tomb. The Lord Jesus and the apostles could not have made it any clearer against a hurricane of culture in the first century world that God created humanity, men and women, to bear God's image equally. And God redeemed humanity, men and women, to share all the blessings of redemption and status in Christ Jesus equally. The fundamental equality of men and women in redemption, they share all the benefits of salvation equally. And the fundamental equality of men and women in creation they bear God's image equally. And you're sitting here thinking, well, that's not very controversial, is it? And you are thinking that. Now, let me just interrogate your thinking. It's not controversial at all, is it? It's not controversial at all in our culture to say that men and women are fundamentally equal. It's not controversial. And so as Christians, we accept it. Now, just tuck that away in your mind. See what I'm getting at. We need to be careful not to stand against what is culturally out of step just because it is culturally out of step. What I just said just now about men and women being fundamentally equal, if I had said that in the first century and opened these doors, a hurricane would have blown in. But not now. 
It is right, men and women are fundamentally equal. Now, Genesis 2, though, adds a paradox. I think that's the right word. God created. We're not over to number four yet. We're still on page one. See what you do. Somebody turns the sheet and you all do it. Turn back. Genesis 2, maybe you're turning your Bibles. Genesis 2 adds a paradox. And we've got to get our heads around this paradox. A paradox is not a contradiction. It's something that sits alongside something else that intuitive in our heads, we can't quite get our heads around. Yeah? Here's the paradox. God created male and female in his image equally, but he also made them complementary to one another. That is not the same. Men and women are different, but in a complementary way, whereby men complement women and women complement men. And there are two facets or aspects to complementarity. First, that men and women are different physically and emotionally, but only and always in ways that complement one another. And you can work that out yourself in your mind. Second aspect of complementarity is that men and women are given different roles. In the partnership of two spiritually equal human beings, man and woman, the man bears, in the Bible, the primary responsibility to lead. That's what we mean by headship. Now, I referred to that a moment ago as a paradox. And so it is. How can there be fundamental equality and at the same time, the headship of men and the submission of women to such godly leadership. We can understand how there is equality and difference if all that complementarity was was difference, whereby the physical, sexual, and emotional differences between men and women are perfectly complementary. But how can that complementarity be expressed in headship and submission and stand full square alongside equality. Well, let's read Genesis 2, 15 onwards. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. And so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now look with me again at verse 18. The Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone, I will make a helper fit for him. Now remember the context in Genesis 1. As humanity, we have a unique, privileged responsibility under God to rule over 
and care for the world. Man cannot do that alone. He needs someone to rule over the world and care for it with him. He can't do it on his own. It takes men and women to do it well. And I think intuitively, whoever we are, whatever worldview we have here tonight, intuitively that is right. We are better together. Humanity, men and women in the world, and also it works itself out in marriages. But the word helper also embraces headship and submission. A man is called to lead for God. A woman is called to submit, to respect that leadership. And all through Genesis 2, there are references or pointers to male headship and female submission. For example, God made man first, expressive of his headship. Woman was made from man, equality, and for man, headship and submission. Adam welcomes Eve as his equal. She is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, but also names her. It is his God-given responsibility. And right at the end of Genesis 2, it is the man who takes the initiative. It is the man who leaves his father and his mother and is united to his wife, which is why in our culture, still, by default, irrespective of what the cultural hurricane says they are to do, it is men who typically get down on one knee as an act of humility and servant-hearted devotion and say, will you marry me? Why on earth does that happen? Why does that happen? That should not happen, according to our culture, and yet it does. Is it because there is something in the heart of a man that God has given that makes them get down on their knees before their wife-to-be and looks at them and says, will you marry me? The initiative. Genesis 3, everything falls apart, everything is reversed. And one of the most notable features of Genesis 3 is Adam's failure to take the lead. Why does God blame Adam for our fall in Romans 5? Because he abdicated his responsibility to lead. Why does Genesis 3.7 say that it was only after Adam joined in the rebellion that the eyes of both of them were open to the condition? Why is it that God calls out in the Garden of Eden after the fall, where are you, Adam? Not where are you, Eve? Why does God not summon both to account? Because as the God-appointed head, Adam bore the primary responsibility to lead their partnership in a God-glorifying way. Now, as we leave the foundational chapters on men and women, let me give you uh, these definitions of biblical manhood and biblical uh, womanhood. Here's biblical manhood. At the heart of mature masculinity is a sense of benevolent responsibility to lead, to provide for, and to protect women in ways appropriate to a man's differing relationships. And you can get all of these on the material I've pointed you to. And here is a biblical definition of womanhood. At the heart of mature femininity is a freeing, 
Notice a freeing, not a constraining, a freeing disposition to affirm, to receive, and to nurture strength and leadership from worthy men in ways appropriate to a woman's differing relationships. You see what's behind all of that biblically? Biblical manhood makes biblical womanhood thrive. Biblical womanhood makes biblical manhood thrive. Now, what does this look like in the world of your lives and my life and our church's life? What does God say to us now as we pick up the New Testament about how we should live? There are two applications of this, and you can turn the page now. You're all wary of doing that. There are two applications of this in the Bible. What does it look like in the household that is the home of the family? And what does it look like in the household of God that is the church? And it's the same. The household, which is our families. So me and Sally and the kids at home, or you if you are in families. What does it look like in the church family? Now, what does it look like in the household at home? We looked at in detail this morning from Ephesians. And I want to just quickly move over that. Let me just read you a few verses. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. You see, the line runs all the way through the Bible. In creation, the man is the head of the woman. In the household, teaching in the New Testament, the man is the head of his wife. As, and the quotations go both ways, the justification goes both ways, as Christ is the head of the church and as it was at creation. So it it runs in all directions. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with a word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Now, that's one of the passages in the New Testament that speaks about uh, the relationship between a husband and their wife and a wife and their husband. And it works itself out in all sorts of practical ways and in all sorts of spiritual ways. Now, I'd encourage you to listen to this morning's talk online, which explained that in a lot more detail as far as marriage is concerned. What I'd like to turn to now is number five, and what equality and complementarity look like in the household of God. So what does that look like in a local church like Chammers? Now turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2, and uh, you'll find that on page 8,612. I don't know what page it's on. You have to find it yourself. It's not on my sheet. I've got a big Bible for the nearsighted. 
Um, somebody shout out a page number, help people to have it. 991. Okay, 1 Timothy chapter 2, and I want us to read from verse 11. And remember, this is the key New Testament letter on how one ought to behave in the household of God, that is the church, which is the pillar and the buttress of the truth. So it's a big deal. 1 Timothy 2 verse 11, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, don't default to think what you think that means. Just bear with me, okay? Let me read on. The saying is trustworthy, chapter 3, verse 1. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer or elder, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer or elder must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace into the snare of the devil. Now, I want to come at this with two lines. I want us to focus, first of all, on male authority in the church. And then I want to say something about teaching in the church. So put all the stuff in 1 Timothy about teaching to one side for a minute. Focus on the line that runs through that passage on male authority. Let me read it again and point it out. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to exercise authority over a man. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, let me explain what verses 14 and 15 are saying. Uh, they sound difficult to embrace. For Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a... Tr That's not saying that women are gullible and culpable and to blame for humanity's rebellion. What uh, verse 14 is doing is saying that, that the order that God gave us in Genesis 1 and 2, God created humanity, God created man to take the lead, then God created the woman, and man and woman with male headship had authority over the whole of God's creation and the animals, in rebellion was reversed. And that's the picture in Genesis 3. The animal persuaded Eve to persuade Adam, who abdicated his responsibility to lead. It's just a reversal of Genesis 1 and 2. That's what's going on in that verse. That's what Paul means. And he speaks in these ways a number of times in the New Testament. 
And remember, the culpability for rebellion in the New Testament is attributed by Paul in Romans in particular to Adam. To Adam. Who didn't say anything or do anything. What about verse 15? Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. What does that mean? It might mean, A, that to women, to women is given that unique and special privilege of bearing children, one of whom will become the Lord Jesus Christ, born of Mary. And what a unique privilege given to women that is. Or it means that, and Paul contrasts this later on in 2 Timothy and in 1 Timothy, by saying, look, God has given men and women different roles. Now, immediately you're going to think, does that mean that women should stay at home? And I've, No, it doesn't mean that. It just says, look, women are given the ability to have children that men aren't. And one of the things that we need to do in our culture is not downgrade that. Motherhood is a wonderful thing. Whether a woman works or doesn't work, motherhood for both is a wonderful thing. So that's what Paul is saying in verses 14 and 15. Now, I needed a lot more time to take you through that. We'll do that in 1 Timothy. But the principle here is, I do not permit a woman to exercise authority over a man. For Adam was formed first and then Eve. Or in other words, I do not permit a woman to exercise authority over a man. And let me go back to these principles in creation and root what I've said in there. It's what he's doing. And immediately he moves on in chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, to speak about those who exercise authority in the life of a church. And so he says, uh, uh, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of elder or overseer, he desires a noble task. He is to be a husband of one wife. He must manage his own household well. Notice the reference to his household and the link to the household of God. Now, I said at the beginning that uh, our elders have wrestled with this over the past few months and uh, in, a, in, a, in a wonderfully godly way, which has not been easy for us to do, and have come to, to see that what God is, is teaching here in his word is right. And we need to humbly listen to his word and manage the household of God as the Bible says. And that's not easy. But it's God's word. And therefore, as we will see in a moment... And as we will see as a church, the floodgates to liberate us in many ways will be opened. Now, having ignored everything I've said about teaching, why does Paul put authority and teaching together? He does it because authority in a church is exercised by teaching. Jesus is the head of the church. Christ leads the church through his word. And therefore, the responsibility of those in leadership, the elders, and some of us as our jobs, is to teach the word. And authoritative teaching, that is when the church is gathered and there are both men and women, is the responsibility of men. 
which is why the person you get up here Sunday by Sunday is a man. It's not a tradition, it's us seeking as best we can to be faithful to Scripture. Now, that does not mean that women should not teach in a church. There are lots of appropriate contexts. Paul speaks about women prophesying, sharing biblical knowledge in church, discussing, or women teaching women in Titus 2. Titus 2 is, is for, for many years, this teaching in the Bible has is, is kind of been over there for us because it's too risky. We haven't really, and in 10 years of ministry, I haven't really taught you what the Bible says about how we should function. How bad is that? It is. Because it liberates us. Now, we need to be confident in this, yet careful and loving. Robert Murdoch preached three great sermons on 1 Corinthians, see if I can get this right, chapter 1, chapter 12, and chapter 13. Chapter 12 is a wonderfully powerful picture of how this group here is like a body. Some of you are hands and legs and eyes and ears. Some of you are intestines and spleens and all sorts of gruesome bits. And the bits that you see up front, like me, I'm the kind of face or the hands and the eyes. You can cut me off and the church will come back next Sunday. But the bits you can't see, like the toenails and the, the guts, you can't take them out. Otherwise, the church dies. It's a powerful image. It's very affirming. And then in chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, Paul says, and he kind of cuts across the Corinthian church and says, look, Love each other, be gracious, be kind, be gentle. Love each other. And what do 1 Corinthians 12 and 13 follow? 1 Corinthians 11. And 1 Corinthians 11 is exactly the same as 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 to 15. It says exactly the same thing. And you see, it needs two chapters after it to affirm everybody in their God-given gifts and to exhort people when they speak about this to one another to love each other from their hearts. Now, why do we find this so hard? Why do we find it so hard to accept and embrace we may have changed a bit as we've looked at it together tonight, but for many Christians, it is hard to accept and embrace, and for many reasons. Here are three. One, the overwhelming pressure of the culture that riles at any suggestion of male headship and female submission. Number two, our own hearts, our continued struggle as Christians to accept what God says is right. Let me be bold enough to say, as gently as I can, that that is disobedience. It is disobedient to know what the Bible says and say, I won't accept it. Number three, we mess it up a lot and a lot of the time. As Christian husbands, we are clear in our responsibility to take the lead and really do so. And when we do, it is not in a loving way that Christ loves the church, but in an autocratic way. Do this because I told you. 
And we can say that like that, or we can say it, just do it, because I'm the head of the house. We could do well to remember as husbands to live in our marriages like we proposed to our wives on one knee. More likely, though, as Christian husbands, we abdicate our responsibility to lead at all. Or a Christian wife who meekly and feebly waits on her husband, all that will do is make it harder for the husband to learn to lead in a Christ-like way. Or a Christian wife who effectively replaces her husband as the head of the home through sheer force of personality and conviction. If I could pick out one of these as the worst failure, it would be male domination. Male domination, though, and listen to this, Male domination is a personal moral failure, not a biblical doctrine. You see the difference? Leading as Christ leads is a biblical doctrine. Abusing that privilege to lead in an autocratic way is a moral failure on the part of men, not a biblical truth. And in church life, of course, these issues are to the fore and we need to put right what is wrong again and again and again in my life and ministry as we have sought as a church to do what is right you just sit there and calculate all the risks and yet again and again and again God proves that his word is right and true and good but let me refer you again to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And getting this right liberates every part of a church body to thrive and tick. And then let me refer you to Robert's sermon on 1 Corinthians 13. And let love, not, not, I'm tired. What's the word? Mushy, mushy. Not sentimental, mushy love flow through your veins, but real love that looks people in the eye and says, Look, let's get the Bible right. Let's trust it. Finally, number seven, equality and complementarity in the Trinity. So God created man, that's back to Genesis 1, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them. Let us make man humanity in our image. The Creator is the Godhead. Let us make. Let us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, create humanity, male and female. Within the Godhead, there is equality and complementarity. And there must be. For if being made in the image of God is to reflect equality, we must find that in the God who created us, if we are in his image. And if there is difference, difference in terms of roles and difference in terms of headship and submission in what God created in his image, that must be in God himself. Is that true? In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul writes about order and propriety in public worship and says this, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ and the head of a wife is a husband and the head of Christ is God. The Bible is clear that there is absolute equality between Father, Son and Holy Spirit. All are fully God. 
And there is also complementarity, embracing difference. That is different rules and headship. The head of Christ, the Son, is God the Father. The Son submits to the Father's will. And standing back from that, what do you see? That the principle of male headship in the church, the household of God, expressed, for example, in 1 Timothy 2.12, and the principle of male headship in the family household, expressed, for example, in Ephesians 5.21-33, is not simply rooted in creation. It is rooted in eternity before even creation in the personhood of God. And that's a powerful, powerful, powerful thing. Now, my concluding word is on failure and grace. We all get stuff wrong. We need God's help his forgiving grace, his transforming grace to get this right. My biggest error, I'm nearly at my 10th anniversary and I have never, ever taught this. And that's really bad. Because even over these last four weeks, God has confounded all my doubts. As elders, as we have wrestled with this, God has confounded our own human doubts. I mean, there are risks ahead but there is liberation in doing what God's word says. We've seen that as a church. But we need to be a community now like 1 Corinthians 12 with every part of the body flourishing. And we need to be a community like 1 Corinthians 13. We need to ask and answer questions in that way with love coursing through our body, which is a church. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that we would understand, accept, and embrace what the Bible teaches about equality and complementarity in all its dimensions. We pray this would be reflected in the individual households within the church and in the church, the household of God as a whole. And we pray that as we study this in 1 Timothy next year, it will help and liberate us as a church in so many different ways. We pray, Lord, that love will course through our bodies and our body as one. And we pray that we would always be found wrestling together with your word seeking to do what it says. Bless us, Lord, now in conversation. Bless us in time of question and answer. And guard and keep us, and guard and keep one another as we ask all these things for Jesus' sake. Amen.